1: Date and time of autopsy, March 3rd, 2016, 1300 hours. The cadaver corresponds to an adult female.
2: Three bullets, all fired from a Smith & Wesson 38 Special, had ripped through her body.
1: Complexion, average. Body condition, intact. Height, 163 centimeters. Rigidity, complete.
2: One bullet entered her left arm and continued into her side. It pierced her left lung before lodging in her
1: right one. Alterations observed. The Curtis tattoo on left upper third of back.
2: Another bullet entered her left shoulder at an upward angle. It continued toward her neck, bursting the jugular vein and an artery. A third bullet entered her upper back. It tore through her left lung, then her diaphragm, then her stomach, her adrenal gland, and finally fractured one of her vertebrae.
1: Fingerprint examination revealed that the corpse registered as autopsy 371-2016 belongs to Berta Isabel Cáceres Flores.
2: The medical cause of death was obvious to the coroner. But you'd never find the real cause by tracing those bullets. To do that, you have to follow the path of Berta's life as an activist. It starts in her childhood home. I'm Monty Real, an investigative journalist for Bloomberg Green. This is Blood River. Berta's mother's name is Austra Flores. She's showing me around the family home in La Esperanza, a small city in western Honduras. The rooms where Berta slept and worked for years remain pretty much as she left them. Her mother shows me Berta's old work files, her high school awards, and some of the rag dolls she liked to collect. Including a little brown one, Berta's favorite. Una muñeca? Sí, una muñeca negrita. Austra wears her gray hair long, pulled back in a loose ponytail. Her 87 years have been full of challenges. She mothered 12 children. More recently, she suffered three strokes and a brain hemorrhage, but she's still sharp. And her memories of Berta are especially vivid. She was the youngest of the 12, and Austra calls her Bertita, an endearing way of saying little Berta.
3: Bertita, fue una incansable.
4: Bertita was a tireless fighter, and I think that, yes, she learned a lot from me. Austra was born in
2: 1933. That same year, the National Party of Honduras took control of the presidency that party still exists. It's one of the two most powerful political coalitions in the country, the more conservative one. The National Party has evolved over the decades, of course, but some of its early leaders were classic authoritarians. They cracked down on labor unions and the press. They jailed political enemies and even outlawed opposition parties. They denied citizenship and the right to vote to women and they routinely exploited indigenous communities for cheap labor. These events in the 1930s and 40s would shape the destiny of the Cáceres family for generations. Austra's father was a critic of the National Party. He spent nearly five years in jail as a dissident. Austra would grow up to work as a midwife she guesses she delivered something like 5,000 babies over 60 years. Most of them were born in the countryside, in small, indigenous communities. In the 1970s and 80s, her youngest daughter often could be found at her side.
3: Bertita, desde pequeña, me
4: acompañaba. Bertita, from when she was little, would come with me, sometimes attending the births. She'd hold a little candle to give me light because there was no electricity. And she'd bring me water. She boiled it. And that's how she became aware that working on behalf of women was
3: a necessity.
2: Women, indigenous communities, the poor. These had been the underdogs in Honduras, the people that history hadn't been kind to. They inspired Austra to get involved in politics. And this was at a time when women in Honduras almost never did this. Austra became the first female mayor of La Esperanza, then a provincial governor, and later a member of the Honduran National Congress. Berta watched and learned. And as she got older, her own personality emerged. Her mother had raised her Catholic, but as Berta grew up, she began embracing Lenca traditions. The Lenka are the largest indigenous group in Honduras. But their language and traditions were largely lost, obliterated by modern mainstream culture. This happened well before Berta was born. But an effort to reclaim and protect those traditions really started taking off in the 1980s when Berta was a teenager. She embraced that movement, and it helped shape her identity as a student activist. Her older brother says by the time they were in high school together, he knew his sister was a leader and a rebel, too. Yeah,
5: was the president of his course.
2: She was the president of her class and later of an entire school system. And if ever they expelled some kid unfairly, she was always fighting for them. She even led a strike that we called against the school directors who were, in a way, dictatorial. Back then, in the 80s and early 90s, neighboring El Salvador was torn by civil war. The Casares family sympathized with the leftist rebels there. The ones fighting against the Salvadoran government. The family sheltered refugees in their home. After Berta graduated high school, she traveled to El Salvador to join the cause. She didn't take up arms, but she supported fighting units as a sort of field medic and radio operator. Berta returned to La Esperanza in 1990 after less than a year in El Salvador. At home, she continued to embrace leftist causes. Members of the local police and the military now considered her a political agitator, and their suspicions extended to the whole Cáceres family. Berta's brother remembers how encounters that seemed innocent at first could take unexpected turns.
5: A mama le tocaron la puerta de aquí y le dijeron de que Someone knocked
2: on the door here and asked Mama if she would come and assist with a birth.
5: Que si podia ir a un parto.
2: Austra agreed to go with
5: them in a taxi,
2: but it was a trap. Police and soldiers surrounded the car and hauled her into the station. Berta was just 19 or 20 years old. When she heard her mother had been arrested, she snapped into
5: action. Y la gente empezó a moverse, entonces Bertita empo- empezó a llamar al pueblo.
2: Bertita started calling around town, and the people started to mobilize. It was Berta who went to the police station, arguing for Mama, fighting for Mama. There was a protest with about three thousand people there. They took over the entire police station to demand the release of Mama, and it was organized by Bertita and my other siblings.
5: Por Bert- por Bertita y mis otros hermanos. By her early 20s,
2: Berta was on her way to becoming the loudest voice for indigenous and women's rights in western Honduras. And by her 30s, she'd become a national figure. She often traveled to the capital, Tegucigalpa, to lobby for her causes. After President Manuel Zelaya was elected in 2006, her influence grew. She wasn't a member of his party, but he sometimes supported her opposition to mining and hydroelectric projects on indigenous lands. And she supported his proposal to rewrite the country's constitution, a move that caused the Honduran establishment to rebel against Zelaya's administration. The Honduran military, in particular, considered it a threat to the country's traditional order. Then, on June 28th, 2009, Honduran politics and the trajectory of Berta's life took a very sharp turn.
3: It all began at dawn on
4: Sunday when some 200 soldiers surrounded the president's private home, they took him at gunpoint and flew him out of the country to neighboring Costa Rica.
2: Soldiers kidnapped President Zelaya. They smuggled him out of the country in his pajamas. The National Party, the same one that had imprisoned Berta's grandfather, took power. Instantly, Berta became a national leader of a new resistance movement.
4: Viva la de resistencia. Viva la
6: de la de
2: when the military oversaw a new round of elections, Berta and others urged the public to boycott the vote. She said the same people who launched a coup couldn't be trusted to make the process fair. Hundreds of local and national candidates dropped out. But the election went ahead anyway. The National Party consolidated its power. And now, fully in control of the presidency and the National Congress, the party's leaders wanted to send a message to the world. They wanted other countries to know that things would be different here from now on. The government adopted a new catchphrase, and it was in English, as if composed especially for a foreign audience. The slogan was HOB, Honduras is open for business. In 2010, the new Honduran government held an international business conference to sell the idea to investors. The new leader of Congress, Juan Orlando Hernandez, told the audience that Honduras was prepared to cash in on one of its most valuable
5: natural resources. We have to take advantage of the enormous potential of our rivers to build large dams and medium-sized dams, and we've awarded around 50 contracts for clean energy with a clear message that this is the route we want to take moving forward.
2: The Honduran business elite rallied together to create companies that would build these new hydroelectric projects. One of these companies was called DESA. The government gave it the go-ahead to build a dam on the Gualcarque River, a few hours' drive from La Esperanza. The project was called Aguazarca. And as soon as that project was set, Dessa was on a collision course with Berta. The Awazarca project was considered a small dam by industry standards. The original plans called for a dam wall that was about 46 feet tall at its highest point. There was to be a mile-long tunnel, a reservoir, and a power station. Berta and the Rio Blanco residents who opposed the project argued that the impacts would be devastating. The dam would disrupt the flow of the river and degrade the land they depended on for crops. But beyond those environmental impacts, they argued that the Rio Gualcarque is sacred to the Linka people. They say the river is their lifeblood. But almost everything about the project violated Berta's worldview. The government was saying that this private company, Dessa, would finally bring critical infrastructure to the tiny communities by the river. Paved roads, electricity, schools. But in a radio interview in 2015, less than a year before she died, Berta explained that she hated that idea. She didn't want to leave those sorts of things to a company that was not subject to public oversight. Es una
7: obligación de los estados de los gobiernos. Pagamos impuestos para eso. this is the obligation of the state of the government. We pay taxes for that. but in Honduras if communities have a school, it's usually only because they fought and worked for it. So this is the duty of the state. It's not that you have to go to a private company for the right to have a road.
6: Eh,
4: tiene que dárselo a una compañía para tener derecho a una carretera.
2: So many of Berta's preoccupations as an activist came together in this project. Her environmentalism, her skepticism that a for profit business could reliably serve the public interest. And then there was the politics of it all. All of this was backed by the National Party, a group her family had been fighting for generations. It seemed like Berta's whole life had led her straight toward a reckoning on that river. run for it. I'm in a van, and it's January 2020, more than three years after Berta was killed. A member of COPIN, Berta's activist organization, is with me, as well as a guide who's a friend of the Cáceres family. We're heading toward Rio Blanco, a town near the Gualcarque River. The plan for today is to meet people who worked alongside Berta. I was warned that this trip could be risky. There's only one road that leads to Rio Blanco. The activists say locals who supported the Aguazarca project have been known to attack people they believe are connected to Copine. While we're driving, it starts to rain. And soon, just a couple of miles before we reach our destination, our van gets stuck on a muddy road in precisely the worst place to get stuck. We're directly in front of a group of houses. The activists tell me most of the attacks have happened right here. Inside the van is Raúl, my coping friendly guide, and an activist named Dunya. They huddle together trying to brainstorm a way out of this jam.
5: Okay. So I'm saying, what options do we have? Um, she sa- and I said, what about if we get beasts, like horses? horses and yeah. then she says, the problem would be leaving the car here because they haven't a- even attempted to set coping cars on fire. Mm. And the only reason they couldn't uh, set it on fire was because there was a crowd here like looking at the car. That would not be good.
2: One option we don't have is calling someone. Our cell phones are not getting reception. And as we sit, stuck in the mud, several people begin coming out of their homes. I see someone pacing at the top of the hill our van wasn't able to climb. Dunya grew up around here, and she recognizes his face. So there's a guy on the the, the the hilltop kind of walking around here with a machete, and she said that that guy, his family, has been harassing her family, It's not looking good. She's a little bit concerned about being attacked. It's really hard to stop looking at that machete. And pretty soon, we notice that he's not the only person carrying one. In rural Honduras, machetes are a pretty common sight. For farmers here, it's just a tool of the trade. But in the conflict over the Aguazarca Dam, machetes have been a weapon of choice. Our driver, Ronnie, sits still for a moment behind the wheel, letting everything sink in. Then he slams his palm onto the side of his head three times. Cómo estás, Ronnie? ¿Eh? ¿Cómo estás?
5: Estresado.
2: Sí. Yeah. So now he was and he said stressed. So here we are, trapped. The van's wheels are spinning and spraying mud everywhere, but we're not budging. And all the while, more people keep coming out of the houses, and they just stand there, staring at us. This goes on for about 45 minutes. The standoff is an appropriate introduction to Rio Blanco. The threat of violence has become this community's defining feature. Eventually, some people approach the van from behind. Duny recognizes them. They're friends. They offer us a ride in a truck that's a lot more agile in the mud than our vehicle. We hop in and make it up the little hill, past the staring onlookers, and past their machetes, safe.
7: Before the dam came into our community, this was a community that was nice and clean. We were able to go out onto the road in the dark, and now we can't. Or we can, but we're torn to pieces. So that's why, and even now it's still the case, this dam came in and tore our community apart.
2: This was one of the people we'd come to see. Maria Santo Dominguez. Like everyone else in this tiny village, she lives in a cramped, cinderblock house. Pigs and chickens root in the yard by the outhouse. Sometimes they try to wander in the front door. When officials from Dessa, the hydroelectric company, came here in 2012, they promised electricity, new roads, and new schools. Some of the locals welcomed that attention. But Maria was skeptical. Her family got water from the Gualcarque River. They grew corn along its banks. When Berta Cáceres began organizing local opposition to the project, Maria became one of her most loyal companions.
7: If we weren't organized, we wouldn't still be here. Because the dam, it's a dam of death.
2: Dessa had hired Sino Hydro, a Chinese contractor, to handle construction. In early 2013, Sino Hydro established a work site a couple of miles from Maria's house. She worked with Copine to help erect roadblocks to prevent construction equipment from moving in and out. But some of Maria's neighbors, the ones who supported the project, took offense. Things come to a head that summer. One morning, Maria is walking beside a dirt road when several neighbors surround her. Three men, two women. The men are holding machetes. The women carry heavy sticks. They tell her she's strangling the local economy.
7: That's why we live in poverty, they told me. Because I don't allow projects to come in that would help everyone. And I told them, no, you're so wrong. Because what they're doing will only contaminate the water, the land. They told me, okay, woman, what we're going to do is kill you. And when they told me they were going to kill me, that's when I felt the first blow. The first strike of the machete hit me in the head. And after that, another machete hit me here, in the chest. And then there was another that got my finger.
2: That finger falls away, severed. She's bleeding from wounds in her chest and her head. As Maria is being attacked, her husband arrives on the scene. The attackers turn on him. They slash him with a machete, cutting into his hand, his forehead, and the skin around his left eye. When the carnage is over, the two of them are rushed to a hospital. They spend eight days there, recovering. Maria says they were still healing, when a fellow Copine activist named Tomás García helps organize an impromptu protest at the Sino Hydro construction site. Maria refers to Tomás as her hermano, or brother, in the sense that they were fighting for the same cause.
7: So the day before that, the police came, and they offered my brother 20,000 lempiras.
3: 20,000 lempiras
2: 20,000 limpiras at the time was worth about $450. That's a lot of money in a place like this, more than a month's worth of income for a lot of people. Maria says Tomas Garcia refused the offer. She says he considered it a bribe, something to make sure he wouldn't stir up trouble for Dessa. She says the company and the local police seem to be working together. Company officials vehemently deny these allegations. And we'll fully explore their version of these events later in this series. But Maria insists the offer was a bribe.
7: So my brother said that there was no way he was ever going to negotiate, that he wasn't going to go against his partners in this struggle. He said if he dies, it's better to die clean. He could never get involved in that kind of negotiating.
2: The next day is July 15th, 2013, the day of the protest, and it will define the conflict on the river up until the moment Berta gets killed. That morning, Tomás and the other protesters gathered near the village to make the trek to the construction site. Tomas's 17 17-year-old son, Alan, tagged along. Today, Alan is 24 years old.
8: From there, we started to go out there, to
6: From there, we started to leave at exactly 8 o'clock in the morning, and we arrived at the site around 10 o'clock. There we found soldiers and police and some of the officials from the company. Just then, when we entered the site, they shot my father. Well, they assassinated him, and they shot me too. He was a soldier from
8: Siguatepeque.
2: The security force that protected the worksite was a mix of civilian and military guards. Alan disputes the story that the soldier who fired the shots later told. The guard said he fired in self defense because Alan's father was threatening him with a machete. Alan survived three gunshot wounds to the chest and back. His father was killed instantly. So, even now, nearly seven years after those incidents, the wounds still feel fresh for those who live through them. After my first trip to Rio Blanco with copine members, I returned about a week later. This time, I wanted a different perspective. I was with community members who had supported the dam project and DESA. The roads had dried out by now, but I was shocked when they drove me to the exact spot where the van had been stuck the week before. They led me on foot toward the very house that Copin had described as the most dangerous one in Rio Blanco. They told me this was the home of the Madrid family. I recognize the name. Reports by various nonprofit groups outlining the tensions here had mentioned the Madrids. One report I'd read from 2013 said the family had tried to intimidate opponents of the dam through, quote, constant harassment. It was the Madrids who'd sold Dessa the land that would become its work site. This was a family that clearly and emphatically sided with the company. As I approached the Madrid house, coffee beans were drying in the sun. We walked around the back of the house. There we found the family matriarch, 64-year-old Ernea Madrid. She was washing her hair in a cistern. She toweled off, combed her hair, and we sat down to talk.
3: La
4: familia más afectada de Río Blanco ha sido la familia Madrid. The family that has been the most affected in Río Blanco has been the Madrid family all because the institution of Copin. That lady, Berta Cáceres, came here and poisoned the people, these ignorant people, ignorant of a project that was going to move this community forward because she was only looking for benefits for herself. beneficios
2: Erinea was inside this house the day of the tragic protest in 2013 when the conflict carved permanent rifts in this community.
4: The 15th of July was a Monday. I can never forget it. It was Monday, and they marched by here, yelling, 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 until they got to the worksite. Gritando, 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 y hasta que llegaron al campamento.
2: No more than an hour later, just after Tomás and Alan Garcia had been shot, she heard more commotion. It was coming from the field, directly behind the house. Her grandson, Christian, had just headed down there.
4: So the boy walks down there, we have a pasture, and there are cows down there that the boy takes care of.
2: Every day, Christian would milk the cows and give some to the workers at the Sino Hydro site. There, in that pasture with the cows, a group of men returning from the deadly protest encountered the boy.
4: Eh, I heard the shots, but never did I imagine, never did it cross my mind that these people were going to repay me in this way, because I, before the eyes of my God, feel that I had freely eaten and drank with them, freely, as with all my friends. Never could I have imagined they'd repay me like this, by killing that boy who had nothing to do with this. He didn't have any cause.
2: Copine denies involvement in that killing, but Aranea is convinced that the protesters took the boy's life in exchange for Tomas Garcia's. Christian was 14 years old. His mother had died giving birth to him. Aranea was technically his grandmother, but she'd raised him as her son. As Aranea tells me the story, I notice there's a picture of a boy on the wall behind her as she talks. He's wearing a blue suit and tie. A caption printed above the image reads: Christian, you live in the heart of our family.
4: I took hold of him 8 hours after he was born, and so that's why this has cost me so many tears. I said to God, leave him for me, because I need him in my life. My boy, how can it be? And it hurts me. These things they've done are unfair. I have not been able to overcome this, the death of my son. It's already six years ago, but for me, it's like it was yesterday. Yo no años ya. Para mí parece ayer
1: Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork.
8: Okay, my name is Sergio Rodriguez.
6: My name is Sergio Rodriguez. I'm a biologist. I've been a consultant studying environmental impacts all of my life, 20, 25 years. And I started working for DESA in
8: June 2012.
2: Junio del 2012. If the Agua Dam project had a face in the communities beside the Rio Gualcarque, It was Sergio Rodriguez. Several development banks in Europe and the Americas were funding the project. To get that money, the company had to meet certain environmental standards. It was Sergio's job to make sure that happened. And when DESA contracted with Sinohydro, the Chinese company, to start construction in early 2013. Sergio also was tasked with maintaining good relations with the people living nearby. He pitched the promised upsides, the new roads, new schools, new jobs. Sergio says that at the time construction was set to begin in 2013, the atmosphere in Rio Blanco was calm.
6: At first, the project uh, had good relations with the different communities on both sides of the river, in in Itibuca and Santa Barbara. Then, when Sinoidro started, we ran into a few problems, with its workers going onto properties without asking permission. Or when they were doing topographical work, they cut down some of the cornfields, and the machines plowed up land and some of the neighbors' property. So, these little problems started day by day, and we were like, okay, we have to fix this. We will fix this.
2: But Sergio's promises didn't satisfy the dam's opponents. Sergio puts part of the blame on Berta. He says she tried to convince residents that the roads and schools would never be built. In July 2013, Sergio says he wanted to work things out with Berta. She agreed and they met for the first time at a Copin-run community center called Utopia in La Esperanza. We were
6: there talking with them, and we proposed a way to solve the conflict and to guarantee the communities that the social projects would be completed and Copin could be in charge of them, or they could supervise our construction of them. And their position was
8: no.
2: Three days later in Rio Blanco, Tomas Garcia and his son Alan were shot at the demonstration. Young Christian Madrid was killed in the family cow pasture.
8: I went
6: the next day and well it was devastating to see everything that had happened painful because of the deaths that had occurred, both of Tomás García and Cristian Madrid. Cristian, I knew him. And so we evacuated some things from the site, and the project was suspended as such.
2: Sergio filed criminal complaints against Berta and Copin. Sino Hydro abandoned the worksite and never came back. DESA severed its relationship with the company soon thereafter. Sergio says DESA wasn't happy with the way Sino Hydro had been operating anyway, and they hired a new contractor. DESA executives came up with a plan to salvage the project. They tweaked the design of the dam. Now it would be what's called a run-of-the-river hydroelectric project. Instead of featuring a large dam wall, A run-of-the-river project directs water into tunnels built beside the river and into the power station. Then the water is rerouted back to the river downstream. So there's usually much less environmental impact. Additionally, DESA moved the project to a new location.
6: To avoid conflict, then, we moved the side of the dam, relocating it two kilometers upstream where we had 100%
2: support, and there was no problem. The move didn't end the protests from Copine. Even if the environmental impacts were reduced, they didn't completely disappear. The protesters argued that it was still a disruptive construction site. The river's aquatic life and the strength of its flows could be altered. Copin planned one of its protests for February 2016, just a couple of weeks before Berta was killed. Sergio says most of the protesters were bussed in from La Tejera, a neighborhood in Rio Blanco that's on the other side of the river, near the previous site of the project.
6: We had information that Berta Cáceres was going to come and that she had asked the residents of La Tejera to cross the river again, and they were to occupy the project's property for something like eight days. Because we knew this demonstration was going to happen, obviously we called the police again, and the police arrived before the protest started.
2: When Sergio got to the scene, he spotted a familiar face among the demonstrators.
6: I approached Berta Cáceres and greeted her. How are you doing, Berta? I asked her. I congratulated her on the Goldman Prize that they had given her in 2015, and she told me, you're invited to come visit the Utopia Center so you can see what we've done with the prize
8: el premio
2: that he says was the extent of their conversation Sergio says it was the last time he'd ever see her about two weeks after that meeting Sergio's phone rang
8: el 3 de marzo a
6: las cinco... On the 3rd of March at 5.30 in the morning, approximately, I received a call from Claudia Eraso my colleague. She told me, Sergio, they killed Berta. I said, what? What
8: happened?
2: Sergio searched for news on TV. He made a few calls. And he began exchanging text messages with others at Dessa.
8: Everyone is like, "What happened
6: here? What's the latest? What's the impact of this?" And also, this is a crisis for us, because they're going to point the finger at us. Aguasarca was Copin's banner. So it was logical that they're going to point to us..
2: Sergio says he expected investigators to come knocking on his door. And so he waited. Days passed. Then a week. Then another week. No one came. In those days after the murder... Gustavo Castro had emerged as a prime suspect for police. He's the Mexican activist who was in the house with Berta on the night of the murder, and he'd been shot in the hand and the ear. You might remember that when we last heard from him, he was detained at an airport in Honduras. Authorities wouldn't let him leave the country. So a couple more weeks passed. Gustavo was now holed up in the Mexican embassy in Honduras the only place he says he felt safe. The Honduran investigators were still trying to figure out how he might be connected to the crime. Gustavo's brother flew in from Mexico to try to help bring him home, but had no luck.
5: They took us to a room, and there they tell us, Gustavo Castro is now prohibited from leaving the country for 30 days
8: la resolución juez
5: His
2: lawyers asked to see the court order declaring that he be held in the country. But Gustavo says there was no court order. So his lawyers tried to fight back. They went to the courthouse in Las Esperanza and filed two petitions. One was a complaint about not being shown a court order. The other asked that he be allowed to go home.
5: Y al día siguiente mi abogada va And so my lawyer comes back the next day, and the judge tells her he is suspending her from professional practice. In other words, he said to my lawyer, It's ruled that you cannot practice law for the next month. A suspension that can only be done by a bar association. There's a whole process for that. So, with complete impunity, they wanted to leave me without legal representation and leave me on my own.
2: So Gustavo was stuck, in limbo. Authorities wouldn't tell him, or Berta's family, how he fit into their investigation. Two weeks after the murder, the Honduran prosecutors issued a declaration. They said that no details of the probe were to be shared with the Caceres family or their lawyers. The decree said that the family would only be given, quote, information that doesn't jeopardize the investigation. The Cáceres family and Gustavo were in the dark. So, they turned to an international network of activists, environmentalists and human rights campaigners, who'd been following the story from abroad. Those activists went on a media blitz, hoping to pressure the Honduran investigation from the outside. This is a clip from Democracy Now!, an internationally distributed radio and TV program. The host, Amy Goodman, is interviewing Beverly Bell, an American activist who had been a friend to both Berta and Gustavo.
0: What is happening right now in the wake and the horror of the Berta Casadas assassination? What's happening to Gustavo Castro Soto? It reads like the worst Uh, horror movie you could ever imagine. It's just been crazy where Gustavo was locked up in horrible conditions, horrible. What are you calling for now? We are calling for his safe passage out of Honduras back to Mexico. We are also calling for an independent investigation of the assassination of Berta Cáceres because so far it's been grossly manipulated by the Honduran government, which is seeking to target and blame other members of Berta's group who themselves have been detained and are now being investigated.
2: they had ripped a page out of Berta's own playbook. If the Honduran government wasn't listening to them, maybe the noise of an international pressure campaign would attract some attention. They argued that instead of focusing on Gustavo or on Berta's colleagues, they should look at Dessa. Berta herself had repeatedly said that the company had been the source of threats against her life. Berta's daughter, Bertita Isabel continued to press investigators to shift the focus of the probe.
3: Del no ni idea por The public ministry had no idea what to do with
4: themselves. So we were saying, look at the company. But 13 or 14 days passed before the company, for the first time, was targeted.
3: Para que la empresa por primera vez fuera allanada.
8: 16 de marzo me llama la Ingrid Figueroa.
6: On March 16th, the prosecutor Ingrid Figueroa called me and told me that I should go to testify in the case of the death of Berta Cáceres
2: in the city of La Esperanza.
8: el caso de la muerte de la de La Esperanza.
2: Sergio says he told the investigator the same version of events he described to me. He said he'd barely known Berta. And that's when the investigator dropped a bomb on him.
6: The prosecutor Ingrid Figueroa told me, You're giving a statement as someone who's being investigated. That's because there's testimony that you threatened Berta Cáceres with death. I was surprised. I had seen Berta Cáceres three times in my whole life.
2: Several of Berta's colleagues with Copin told investigators that Sergio had been harassing Berta since 2012. He threatened her with repeated telephone calls. And that conversation that happened a couple weeks before the murder the one that Sergio says was friendly when he congratulated her on the Goldman Prize, Copin witnesses say Sergio was angry with Berta, that he threatened her again. After his interview with the prosecuting investigator, Sergio returned to his home in Tegucigalpa. Later, that same day that Sergio was questioned, another Copin activist, a man named Nelson Garcia, was shot and killed about 100 miles south of La Esperanza. Honduran police considered it an isolated case. He'd been involved in other protests which weren't connected to DESA or Aguazarka. Even so, that killing got the attention of two European development banks that had backed the project. Both said they'd suspend financing until the investigation was resolved. So now, Sergio's job had become much more difficult. But he hadn't given up on the project. As far as he knew, the accusations against him were going nowhere. He continued working for Dessa, waiting for the smoke to clear. But there were signs the investigation was evolving. In April, Gustavo Castro was finally allowed to leave the country. He'd been held by authorities for more than a month, but now he was no longer considered a suspect. The investigators' interests seemed to be shifting toward other people, Sergio was one of
8: them. And
6: then on May 2nd, my lawyer called me and said, There's a warrant to search your house.
8: That day, May 2nd, 2016,
2: would begin at dawn with a series of raids and surprise arrests. By late morning, Secret developments inside the investigation began to emerge. A new cast of characters would assume center stage. And by evening, more blood would be spilled. The story of that day, from dawn to dusk, on the next episode of Blood River. Blood River is reported and written by me, Monty Real. Tofer Forges is our senior producer. Maya Cueva is our associate producer. Our theme was composed and performed by Senya Rubinos. Special thanks to Patricia Laya, Carlos Rodriguez, and Jose Orozco. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review. It helps others find out about the show. Thanks for listening.